0: This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week, I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Laura Tunstall from Channel 9. Laura's been working in Sydney media for over a decade as a journalist and reporter, firstly in radio with 2UE and 2GB, and then in TV for Channel 9 with The Current Affair and now 9 News. We chat about getting her start in Wollongong, What she really loves most about live reporting and the training involved to get a ride in the Channel 9 chopper. Laura's such a warm, friendly and engaging person, so I really hope you enjoy our chat.
1: Hello,
0: Laura Tunstall.
1: Hello, Ralph Tucker. How are
0: you? I'm good. Now, we've picked a pretty ordinary Sydney day, but we've (laughs) managed to locate the deck bar at Luna Park, which... I think if we're going to pick a a secondary location, this is Beard, and I'm quite happy with it.
1: It's a cracking view. It's just unfortunate we can't see a lot due to the rain.
0: (laughs) Now, you're currently on maternity leave from Channel 9. Uh, You had your beautiful daughter, Grace... How's all the parenting stuff going for
1: you? It's good. She's uh, she's six months old now, so I think I'm finally starting to get my head around it, although every time I think I'm on top of things, she seems to change and throw me a curveball, so I think that's probably going to be like that for the rest of my life, but I'm having a great time. Um, it's been interesting being an observer of the news uh, from home as opposed to, I guess, being the one creating it, so uh, I, I'm enjoying having a little bit of downtime, but I've certainly not been... Uh, relaxing by any means
0: (laughs) now what do you think has been the the biggest challenge so far for you in terms of motherhood everybody has these great preconceived ideas and every tom dick and daisy offers you advice about how you should handle certain situations i tend to find that you can pretty much as a parent throw all that stuff out the window (laughs) because they're all unique right so They, they
1: are they are um I think the biggest challenge probably has just been you sort of, I guess, losing my independence a bit in a way. I've always been a very sort of uh, independent person and um, I've always crammed a lot into a day. And now I find um, if I can get the washing on the line and make dinner uh, and make the bed uh, and manage her, it's a good day. I find that she uh, is full-on demands attention all the time, I guess. And I think that's probably been the biggest um, the biggest challenge and also just getting out the door. Like, how many bags of stuff do you need? Like, it's insane. I, I can't believe I used to just sort of, you know, throw my keys, wallet, phone in a bag and, you know, go out and now I'm totally dictated to by this tiny little person who also decides whether she's going to scream or not when I put her in the car. So <laughs> everything just takes a lot longer.
0: <laughs> and I guess as a, as a couple, you also find that, Time is just a complete vacuum now, and you just wonder what did you do with all of that That's spare time it, that you used to have. That is
1: so true, and everything sort of gets slotted into like ten-minute sections of the day. Like, okay, she's on the play match; I might get ten minutes out of her while she's happy. I've got to fit whatever I can into that ten minutes. Um, you know, maybe I'll put a lot of washing on, or maybe I'll try and like unpack something, or and then all of a sudden that ten minutes is up and you know, I've got to be back, back on with her again. So I sort of, my day becomes these small 10-minute ten, ten windows. So I have no idea what we did before or what we talked about, to be honest, because I find even if we've got a moment together, we just end up talking about her. So <laughs> very boring now, very boring.
0: Now let's chat media and where it all started for you. Was yeah. that... A career path that you had pegged for yourself when you're in school or was it something completely different that you were when, after?
1: Well when I was at school I was really into my favorite subjects were English and drama and I really wanted to be an actress um that I sort of went and did a course and and that's just all I wanted to do was uh, be on stage uh but sort of I guess the more I thought about it I thought I'll probably be waiting tables uh, for the rest of my life when I actually looked at the success rate of of you know how, how difficult acting uh was so I sort of sat down and thought well what is it I like about um being on stage and it was the storytelling aspect of it and for me, I figured the probably the next, the next best thing was um, journalism and being able to tell stories. They just happened to be real-life stories. And the more I did a bit of work experience and kind of um, tagged along with reporters, and I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I don't have to be in an office all day. I could be out telling people stories, meeting new people. Um, and it kind of, yeah, it kind of went from there. So... Um, um, I went to Bathurst Uni at Charles Sturt and yeah, that kind of kicked it off and I loved it there and it sort of cemented that I'd made the right decision.
0: Edwina Bartholomew joined us in one of the earlier episodes of this podcast and she credits you for (laughs) cajoling her into taking up that course at CSU in Bathurst. So you can claim responsibility. That's good I will
1: write off her coattail. Yeah
0: (laughs) and steering her into that direction.
1: Yeah well look we were um you know Eddie and I were good really good friends at school um really good friends at uni and still really good friends now and uh I can distinctly remember sitting in um class with her I think it might have been I'm trying to think what class it was it might have been business studies but we were sort of you know, I said to her, I was thinking of going to Bathurst Uni. I, I can distinctly remember us making a list of pros and cons, uh, of, of the pros and cons of How going to organized? Bathurst, you know, and, you know, one of them being it's not in Sydney, and, you know, but the course was good, and we had this long, long list. And I, I'm pretty sure one of the list of pros was that we might be able to marry a farmer. I'm pretty sure that may have been on, on the list. So we, it was a ridiculous list. Uh, oh, do you but still in have the, the list? end, I, I've got it, I probably do somewhere, you know, <laughs> I don't throw much out, so I probably do have it somewhere. But um, I think the pros outweighed it. In the end, and uh, we had an absolute blast uh, together at, at uni. It's co- it's, co- it's college life, you know. It's um, we sort of went from a private all girls school being thrown into a uh, Bathurst uh, unisex dorm life at college. So, uh, look, there's a lot of stories that uh, can never be shared from there, but we had a really good time.
0: <laughs> now, we have had quite a few people that have been to CSU, we've had quite a few people that uh, went to Maclay College. Tell me about what it was in your mind that made that course in in Bathurst so good because so many people that we see on TV, that we read in the papers, that we hear on radio went through that, that great institution that was Charles Sturt University in Bathurst.
1: They they did, and I think that it has such a good reputation because of that very fact. There's a uh, it used to be back in the day um, known as um, Mitchell College, and the, there's a term they used called the Mitchell Mafia, yeah. which is you know all of the old uh, alumni there who sort of I guess actively look out uh, for new graduates to get them jobs. And I would sort of heard about this Mitchell Mafia, and I, I was obviously conscious that an, an industry like journalism was hard, is hard to get into, and often it's who you know. Because we're you talking know. about
0: like people people like Chris Bath, and we're talking about people like Andrew Denton exactly, and Amanda Keller, yes. like people Big names. who are huge names in Australian media.
1: Exactly, and I, I went to the filming of one of Andrew Denton's shows um, while I was at university uh, at the old ABC studios, and we spoke to him after the show, and he was very keen to speak to us purely because we were Charles Sturt students. So I think there is that real sense of... Um, camaraderie amongst former students there and that's what really led me to the course and it's just it's a really practical course uh it's not about writing essays it's not about um you know s- submitting um so much uh, sort of written assignments it's about the practical component of it they have a tv studio there they have a radio station on campus uh it is um it is a very practical course so you're actually Uh, doing the work that you'd be doing in the industry so I think the graduates that come out of there they know what to do when they see a radio they know how to write a story they know how to write a script they know how they know how to do things practically not just the theory behind it and I think that's why it's such a good course and the other component which I think was the best for me was just being out of Sydney and being away from home because I um, had never been away from home before and um, I probably left quite a sheltered kind of um, existence I guess uh, and just being thrown out out of my comfort zone uh, into a, um, I lived on campus at uni, and I think all of that made me probably mature in leaps and bounds, uh, just in terms of not not sort of work skills, I guess, but just social skills and everything, and just kind of learning to fend for yourself, I guess, really, um, which I think was. The experiences I've had outside of the actual coursework were probably uh, more important for my personal development than anything else.
0: So do you think perhaps maybe if you remained in Sydney, if you went to a, a UTS or if you went to a, a Maclay College, you wouldn't have had that same, as you said, uh, personal development or growth? Because it's it's kind of like people that decide to take a couple of years off and go travelling overseas overseas. They come back and they are a whole lot more worldly. Is that how you sort of felt?
1: Absolutely. And you know what? It's a university where you're you're there with people from all walks of life. Uh, it's not just um, – I think if I'd gone to Sydney Uni or something, I probably would have been with a lot of the people that I went to school with, whereas um, I guess going to Bathurst, there were people from all over the state, you know, who were all kind of thrown into this melting pot, people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life. And I'm still friends with a lot of those – you know, really close friends with a lot of those people now today. And um, and you're all sort of thrown in there, in there together in this strange kind of university. I mean, it's—I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like we—I was in the um, on campus in a section called Towers, which is like this rundown, sort of falling down building. Uh, we used to have like parties for like the cracks in the walls turning 21, and like you know there was like mice and stuff like living in there. Like it was so gross, and but it was just—it was awesome, you know. Um, and I think any kind of like maybe prudishness that I had at you know going to an all-girls school or anything like that was kind of thrown out the window when we sort of were were let loose on 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 the town of Bathurst so and you still see that today you still see university students you know dressed up patrolling the streets on various uh, pub night outs so yeah it's it's, I couldn't recommend it more highly for anyone who who I guess is looking to get into the field of going to that university it was awesome.
0: Did you also find the fact that that made the transition into a work experience or a a work environment a whole lot easier given the fact that you were given such a a strong grounding at university, whereas a whole lot of other people that may have done courses, the practicalities of what they did at at uni didn't necessarily translate to what they would experience on the job?
1: Yes, definitely. And you know, one of the things we used to do a lot um, at university, we'd have current affairs quizzes at, um, every week where they would make sure you'd been watching the news. Um, so, you know, you had to pass those. And that's something I find a lot of um, people I have doing work experience with me at Channel 9, they just don't watch the news. that they, they don't know what's How going on in the world around them. And I think if you're going to do this job, you have to be aware of what's going on around you and you have to watch the news. You have to be an active uh, an active viewer, and um, I think that the course was really good for that. And just being able to—I remember—I remember one of one of our jobs was watching the news, just the local um, Orange uh, wind bulletins at night, and like tra- like transcribing their scripts. So actually seeing how a TV story is put together, or you know, there was a radio station on campus. We had to write our own radio stories, cut our own grabs, all of that. So uh, it was certainly a lot less daunting when it came to getting a job because at least I knew what you know, I knew that I had the skills to to, to do the right to be able to put together a bulletin or to be able to put together a TV story. So I think that practical component, yeah, definitely is what holds graduates there, I guess, in leaps and bounds above other students from perhaps other universities. But I think, you know, I think the Sydney unis are becoming more practical. I think they've probably realised that, you know, Bathurst was kind of paving the way a bit and I think they have definitely wrapped up their uh, programs to include a lot more practical stuff, which is good.
0: Do you find it really disappointing from the generation... I guess below you, like we're talking probably five or or now even ten years below you, the the people that are, are coming through on those work experience programs, or in fact looking to break into the industry, that they don't watch the news yet they want to be involved in, in journalism. You've got you you to live it's it. you got to live it. exactly.
1: And you know you watch the news and you think, well, why are they leading with that story? And you know you question that or. Um I do think you're right, though. I think there is a bit of a, a gap. And uh, the other thing I find with the younger ones coming through is um, a bit of an unwillingness to do the hard yards. Uh, I feel like maybe they th- think things will land in their lap. I mean, I think it's very rare to speak to somebody whose first job out of university was in metro, at a Metro Sydney radio station or TV station um, or whose first job was even on air. I mean, it's very rare, whereas I think you know but if you say to if sometimes i say to people who come to me advice i say well go regional you know go to the country go and work for a local newspaper go and work for a local community radio station somewhere in the country like make all your mistakes you know regionally and then come back to sydney because you'll have all the skills and they're like i don't want to live in the country you're like i don't want to leave sydney and i sort of think well i don't know how how quickly you're going to get ahead here because you've got to be prepared i think to work the hard yards or take a job you know in Sydney that's you're going to have to work your way up kind of thing but I I think there is a bit of a unwillingness to to do that I think but it's such a competitive industry like you you can't just you can't nail the perfect job uh, straight out of university.
0: Well that's the thing I mean you've got to be prepared to work overnights and you've got to be prepared to work on the weekend shifts and all those things and I mean when I first was doing work experience I was fortunate enough to actually get a paid gig when I was doing that which was I think answering phones and it was like 50 bucks for the weekend so I'd work two days and at the end of it I get 50 dollars so I was really over the moon with that whereas I think that perhaps somebody coming through these days would want to work a Monday to Friday gig you know, nine to five. Oh, I'm sorry, in in, in media, it, doesn't it just doesn't happen. No,
1: it doesn't exist. And I worked while I was at uni as well. So I used to work at the old Channel 7 studios at Epping um, in their newsroom. I worked for Sky News. Um, so I was kind of based – I did, I did every second weekend. So I used to come back from Bathurst to Sydney and work Friday, Saturday, Sunday uh, in the 7 newsroom. And you know what? It was um, – no one knew who I was there. I was like the little gopher for Sky News and I felt like this, you know, tadpole in a massive pool. <laughs> I felt like, you know, like no one, no one cared who I was at, at seven and I was so sort of overwhelmed and I'd see all these names at seven that I'd see on the TV and I was so daunted and oh, I was terrified. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years and you know what, I probably left and no one still knew who I was, but you know, I learnt from observing and you know, uh, and it was, it was such a junior role, but you know, it's a foot in the door at the end of the day. And I also sort of managed, I did community radio as well at the time. And I think that's the thing. I, I was sort of balancing three jobs and uni just to try and get my foot in the door and uh, I'm glad I did that because it sort of paid off at the end of the day then by, by getting a full-time gig at, at the end of it. So, But I, I think sometimes maybe some young people these days, it's a bit too much hard work.
0: <laughs> well, I guess the best part of it, and it's probably something that you, you tend to overlook when you, you're young and you, you're green and all that kind of thing, but the people that are a couple of years your senior or they might even be 10 years your senior that are working in those environments when you're doing work experience, end up being terrific contacts for you later in your career. Now, whether they stay in the media or whether they go and work in the, the PR side of things or whether they go and work for a, a government department like the, the, the police service or, or the rural fire service or whatever the case may be from those early days and I've still got people that I met on my first day at day at work experience that I know that I can rely on as as really reliable contacts and I mean you don't look at that at the time but like, like, work's like a really big networking situation, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It's who you know. And I think most job opportunities, anyone in our industry will tell you, it's not usually advertised. It's usually somebody you know. Uh, and I think that's, like, is, that is very much the case. I mean, the reason I first got back into Sydney, so when I left uni, I went to Wollongong first to work in radio. And I was there for about six months and I went to a party uh, up in Sydney on the weekend and I knew that there was a guy at the party that worked at 2UE, uh, Dane Svensson, and I knew he he was friends with a friend of mine and I knew he was at this party and all night I was thinking, oh, I've got to try and talk to this guy because, you know, maybe like he knows someone at 2UE and I could get a job at 2UE and... So I sort of built up it? the courage and it went down. Uh, I think I bought him a drink. I was like, right. And so I sat down talking to him and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, come in and see my news director sometime. Like, you know, I don't know if that, there might be a job going sort of thing. And I was like, okay. And he gave me his number. Well, I followed up on it. Like, the next day I texted him. I was like, are you okay if I call? It was Greg Burns was the news director time. I was like, are you okay if I call him and mention your name? And he said, yeah, of course, no worries. And so I called Burnsy and... Um, he, got, he brought me in that week uh, for an interview, and uh, but it was all just from dropping a name, you know, of a guy that I'd met at a party, and like, I'm now really good, like, I'm good friends with Dane now, obviously, but it's just, you know, if I hadn't have had the I guess the balls to go up and introduce myself and, and make that effort and that's how I then ended up getting sort of my first job in, in Sydney, which was at 2UA, uh, was by doing that, so.
0: I guess that's a great lesson for anybody, is that media people, while it may be a perception of They've got egos and there's a few people that do, but for the most part, they're just normal people and they just enjoy having a chat and and that kind of thing. So it may not be as daunting as you think going and approaching somebody who works at a radio station or a TV station because, generally speaking... They'll have been in your position and they know exactly how you you feel trying to bust the doors down to get into a Sydney metropolitan radio Absolutely. station or TV station.
1: Absolutely. And I find often too, you know, um, they just love being asked for advice as well. I mean, I know that. I'm still like that with my some of my senior colleagues at Channel 9, you know. They love it when you ask for their, for their advice. And I obviously like asking because it's going to improve my story at the end of the day because... You know, these, there are reporters that have been doing this a lot longer than I have been doing it. I don't have all the answers, so I still ask, you know, for, for feedback and advice even now. And I think that's a really important thing is to always, I guess, ask for advice and not be scared of it. Because I, I've never ever asked anybody for an opinion or anything and had them sort of not give me the time of day. I, I don't think necessarily that, that those people um, really exist. I think I've found most people are really like quite encouraging and
0: well i guess the the thing about that is is that if you don't necessarily know something about a a certain subject or or a story that may have some history to it i mean you can tap into to google but it's not really going to give you the look or the feel or if you like you say if you were to talk to a damien ryan or a a simon boda or a mark burrows uh someone who's actually was there and lived the story they're going to give you such A much clearer picture or a greater insight than you could ever get from the internet.
1: Absolutely. And you know, the news kind of repeats itself, doesn't it? You know, um, it might be a different story, but chances are they've covered something very similar before. And I I find their advice invaluable in terms of that. I do find, yeah, it's, it's different news stories but it's the same cycle, you know it's, it's 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 history, history does tend to repeat itself and I think they've there's a high chance they've done a very similar story and, you know, the advice that they can give you on how they approached it or what happened to them or, you know, how they wrote the story, um, you know that can make the end product, your end product, a lot, a lot better at the end of the day with their kind of insight and wisdom and even just, uh, not even just with writing a story, even just with their, like you know career advice too i mean they've been doing it a lot a lot longer than me they've been in the game a lot longer i sort of trust their opinion on anything um you know particularly those guys who you mentioned they've been um wonderful sort of mentors at, at, at nine for me anyway
0: now you talked about how you managed to get out of uni and you get your first job there at wollongong tell me tell me about what that was like for someone that was fresh-faced and Thought they knew everything about everything. (laughs) What was it like walking into that radio station? How did you get that job in the first place? Yeah, I was
1: working um, at uh, Bathurst Uni. There was there's a service that runs out of the Uni called National Radio News. So they provide the um, news to community radio stations across Australia, and I had a cadetship with them. And I answered the phone one day and it was somebody calling from a Wollongong radio station uh, wanting to know if there was anyone working there that would want a job. And I said, yes, me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they said, oh, I'll come down for an interview. So it was uh, I-98 FM, which is the yep. big FM station down in Wollongong. Um, and it was reading the uh, more, uh, sort of late morning news. So starting early in the morning, helping to write the morning news and then starting reading sort of nine till midday um, after the morning reading, uh, Nicole Charlton. And Nicole... Um, so she was sort of she, she was my sidekick in there um she was amazing um she's willing Wollongong- going girl she sort of was a tv reporter now in radio um she was the not one of the nicest people i have ever met in the industry she was she took me under her wing and showed me the ropes showed me Wollongong as well you know invited me into her home Uh, she was just the loveliest person she still sends me messages on my birthday like she is just lovely and uh, we had great fun together in those mornings and i think you know i'd start at 4 a.m and uh I probably was thinking, "Oh my god, this is going to be awful." Starting at four AM, but we had so much fun, and I know you'd be the same. You know those early morning shifts; it's like you kind of bond together over the awfulness of the hours. You're like <laughs> driving to work like in what seems to be the middle of the night, um, and you know she she was fantastic. Um, I'll still I'll still never forget when um, there was a station malfunction down in Wollongong, and um, it was uh, we had a, you know minute silence. It was sort of. Um, it would have been Anzac Day, Remembrance Day, one of those days. And, you know, the minute silence plays at the top of the 11 a.m. news. So I was sitting in the booth getting ready to read the 11 a.m. news, but no one had turned off the emergency backup tape. Oh, no. So well, I'm sitting in there. It's 11 o'clock. So obviously I'm not going to start the news for a minute, but we knew there's a minute of silence. So the last post last post plays on the dot of 11. And then there's about 10 seconds of silence and then Britney Spears kicks in with hit me baby one more time oh no
0: oh, <laughs> And i know, was it's... sitting
1: there in the news booth getting ready to read a very solemn story on, on 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 our diggers and i'm thinking oh my gosh and the q mass panic at the radio station so that was the the joys of working in fm radio
0: <laughs> it's funny you you think about that now and would have gone back to what you were feeling at the time where you would have been completely horrified and mortified but now you can look back on it and just what a great laugh yeah i know, know i know
1: everyone's running around trying to work out how to turn off the emergency uh the emergency backup tape so um but yeah it would look and you know what wollongong was great because i mispronounced things on air um it was the same with my cadetship in bathurst um I think uh, the football team Leicester—I pronounced Leicester once on air. Um, what else did I say? Um, a big one for locals in Wollongong is um, Sydney. siders call it Jarvis Bay, but it's Jervis Bay. When you down, I learnt that the hard way by getting a cop of abuse when I said Jarvis Bay on air, <laughs> and not- everyone called up and says, "Who's that, Pris From the you know North Shore in Sydney, reading Jarvis Bay on air, I copped a lot from that. So I think um, the best thing about working regionally was I made a lot of mistakes there and then when I came to Sydney I still made mistakes but um, I I think the you sort of you learn from that experience and you're less yeah that's why I often often encourage people to go regionally because it's just a bit of a gentler training ground you know you're not as likely to get screamed at uh, by a (laughs) sort of um, high profile announcer uh, in regional stations as you are in Sydney ones.
0: Now, let's talk about 2UE, moving from Wollongong to Sydney, like you said, you're able to sort of get away with a few things that you perhaps wouldn't get away with when you're in Sydney because obviously it's the biggest city in Australia, you're on (laughs) 2UE, which has such a a great and and rich history for for news and, and current affairs. Was that something that you were very much aware of walking into the building?
1: Yeah, and I, I don't think I was perhaps as aware of the history of the station until I started working there and, you know, seeing the photos on the wall and the 2UE mic flag there with, you know, in that um, famous photo of Gough Whitlam and, you know, you, I, I don't think I was quite so aware of the history of the station until I started there. Obviously, I was really excited to be working at 2UE um, and to be in Sydney. Like, I was just – I was so excited, but I think probably – I parked, um, I parked John Laws in one day in one of my early weeks awesome. at the station. Um, and that was, like, really was embarrassing. And I was absolutely terrified. Uh, and, you know, just even seeing Lawsy in the corridor and stuff was pretty incredible. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll never forget my job interview for 2UE. Burnsy sent me out onto the, onto the Pacific Highway, made me do a live cross. And I'd never done, like, a live cross before, ever. And he sent me out to the highway and said that there was like traffic problems, um, on you know, and that I had to do a live cross, sort of on this tra- on this traffic problems. But he was watching me from the window, so I knew I couldn't make it up. And there was not not a car on the road, like when when yeah, he yeah, called yeah, yeah. and did this cross. It was t- uh, it was one of the uh, you know I just never forget that it, I was absolutely terrified, but the adrenaline of it, of that live nature of radio, because I'd been in Wollongong and it was all pr- you know. Uh, just bulletins and reading but there wasn't so much the live reporting angle but I'll never forget I guess that was the biggest excitement at 2UE the live reporting you know like just that feeling that uh, that feeling of adrenaline and I still get that now with doing live crosses on channel nine just that breaking news that excitement and um yeah I think and radio is such an amazing amazing ground for that because you can just like you can instantly be on air with something and Um, That was probably the most exciting thing, I think, for me, starting at 2UE, was just this this whole new concept of live reporting. Um, I I just loved it.
0: You mentioned Greg Burns there. There would have been a number of other people that managed to sort of cut your rough edges off and and mould you into the the journalist that they wanted you to be. Talk us through working in that 2UE newsroom and who was about then and, and what, what you learnt in those very early days.
1: Yeah, um, well, Lynne Scrivens um, was there. She now is uh, works for Channel 7 down in Melbourne. Um, she's quite senior down there putting together the news. And so she was there in the afternoons and she was, um, she was lovely. She was... Uh, it's very wise, Lynn, and um, you know she, the way she put together bulletins. You know, I would watch her really closely. Um, Daniel Sutton uh, was obviously he was there, police reporter. He was the police reporter at the time, and sometimes I tag team with him on big stories because I was only you know I was junior. Um, I remember one night it was um, uh, John Brogdon had um, made an attempt on his life. And it was an awful story, but you know Dan and I were both in the cars, sort of you know bouncing off each other, going to you know, various hospitals, all sorts of things. But I learned a lot from Dan. Um, seeing how he he worked. Um, And there was a really good group at TUE at the time, like uh, Jess Policcioni. I started the same day uh, Dominic Casheri started. So it was a few of us young ones as well. And we kind of really, I mean, I formed such intense friendships there. Like it was amazing to, it was the first time I'd sort of ever, I guess, come to work at a place. And then you wanted to spend time with the same people outside of work as well. And... I think the nature of Sydney radio is very much like that. You have these intense friendships formed because you spend a long time at work. You, spend, you work weird hours, you know. You might be, like, driving into work at, like, 9.30 at night to start the, the graveyard shift overnight. And so you form these really intense friendships and it was a pretty amazing time. Like, I'm still really good friends with all these people today and it's pretty amazing to think it started there
0: at 2UE. You write what you say because... You've got your friends that you grow up with, right? And then you pursue your career. And a lot of your friends, and I'm very much the same, they don't necessarily understand the commitment that's required for someone that works in, in media. They might like the fact that they hear you on the radio or watch you on the TV. But there's not really that great understanding of what it is that goes on behind the scenes. So, like you said, you're great... Friendships that you create in the working environment, which may not happen if you've got a job at the post office or in finance or something. It's just a job, right? You know, you just work with your colleagues and you might not have much fun outside them with work. But the the people that you work with in media get what you do. So there's this automatic kinship that you have with those people. And it's why media is such or seen as such an insular industry because of those friendships that are just forged more so outside the working environment Absolutely. than inside the working environment.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's an, unus- it's an it's unusual hours and you're dealing with unusual things every day, you know. Um, I don't think it's a, a normal kind of necessarily environment. Like some of the stories we deal with are pretty awful and I think you do form a bond with people who are sort of, you have to keep a sense of humour about it, I think, you know. And I think some of us, um, I guess you're sort of, you, you, you tend to gravitate towards like-minded people when you're in an industry like that. And I think very much so um, the people that I've worked with ha- have been like that and, you know, have made friendships that have lasted a really long time. Uh, um, well, you know, even like yourself, like, you know, like, you know, you, and, and we used to have, you know, catching up at radio drinks and stuff and, you know, like it's such a,
0: yeah. So you can, you can, you can pretty much attach yourself, and I'm a little bit older than you, but you can pretty much attach yourself to a journo wherever they are. So whether they're in radio, TV, newspaper or whatever, because the people that have gone through it before you know what you're experiencing, the people that are coming in behind you, you know what they're about to experience. Yes, exactly. So there's that common bond that, that you often share and it's, it's something that's, I think, really quite unique in many ways.
1: Yeah and I often wonder you know is it that we all have similar personalities, is that why we've chosen the profession or is it the profession that has moulded us into who we are and is that why we all sort of gravitate to one another? I don't know that I've answered that question yet but I think it's probably a bit of both.
0: i had done a bit of time working in PR for a couple of different um, organisations and i would worked a a normal office job if you'd kind of like to refer that over the years and you know, just things like simple things like you're allowed to have time off for lunch. Whereas you work in media as a reporter, you're having your lunch in your gutter at, a, at, the, at, yeah. the, at, the, at the crime scene. You got know, Yes,
1: you, so you know, to call them.
0: You're having your lunch at your desk because you can't leave your desk yes. because something might happen, or the you're writing the next hour's bulletin. So. It, those things don't just happen automatically, and like I said before, a lot of people that work outside the industry, your mates that that sort of um, work in different industries. Well, you're working industries. Christmas
1: Day, you know. That's the other thing. Like you're in there at work on Christmas Day or New Year's Day, or uh, it took it took I reckon ten years before my friends outside of the industry stopped asking me you know, could I come do something on Australia Day? It's like, no, I have to work. I work every year on public holidays, things like that, I guess, that mm. only people really understand when they're in the industry. You know, like, well, no, I can't do anything on Boxing Day. Like, I've got to work.
0: Like, it's just... You get six weeks holiday a year, but I don't think that makes up for the fact that, you know, every other day in every other industry, somebody's getting an hour off for, for lunch. lunch.
1: Exactly. I don't, I've never had a lunch break ever, ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> we talked about 2UE there, but then the time came for you to, to move on, to, to move to 2GB. Yes. How did that opportunity come about?
1: It was Jason Morrison. So Jason has been a, a very much a mentor for me in the industry um, and Jason wanted me to come from 2UE to 2GB. And I found that quite terrifying. I mean, when I was at 2UE, it's like 2GB was like the big, like it was the number one station, big, bad 2GB, you know, like it was the opposition. You were the underdog, and, right? Yeah, and 2UE is the underdog and we all used to be like, oh, so glad we don't work at 2GB, you know, we're at 2UE. And, um, and Jason tried to get me come over I t- uh, as police reporter and I-, I knocked it back twice, the um, the did job. You? Yes, I did. I I just couldn't do it. I was so loyal to 2UE and I just, I just couldn't do it and anyway the third time lucky they, they, they got they got me and I, I agreed to come over to be the crime reporter. And I can still remember um Clinton Maynard was the news director at, at that stage. And I can still remember having to tell him that I was going to, to GB. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I, went, I remember going to the bathroom beforehand and, like, like almost throwing up. Like, I was so nervous. I was so, so – I felt I felt like I was betraying the station. You know, like, I felt like I was betraying my family. Like, is how I felt. I felt so awful about it. And he was lovely. Clinton was great. He was fantastic. And, um, you know – um, I think I did cry. Yeah, like, I was pretty I'm going to have to talk to him because <laughs> you know, to you're about that. the I fourth just... <gasps> person that said
0: they went into Clinton Maynard's office and I started know. crying. So <laughs> um, I'm sure he was well stocked up with the Kleenex.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was just so, I don't know, I just felt like I was sort of, yeah, I, I, it was a really hard decision to make. and um,
0: It is hard when you're so emotionally attached, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And I, 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 yeah, anyway, and so I went to 2GB to do the crime round and I, it was fantastic. I loved it. Um, it was so intense. It was, you're, so you're on call 24 hours a day, um, getting call-outs all night, uh, long days, um, but it was fabulous. It was great to have a round of my own Um I enjoyed the crime round a lot more than I thought I would. Um, Jason was fantastic. He supported me the whole way through that role. You know, his co- police contacts are extraordinary and his knowledge of um, breaking news is remarkable and he really guided me and mentored me. Another one who had a big influence on me was Robert Avadia, um, Channel 7 reporter. Uh, he took me under his wing at, at, out at crime scenes. He even was my bodyguard on some occasions when I was sort of charged sure out by some roughs. Rough samoans um, and um yeah he he sort of and you know some of the um cameramen as well because you know you you can be called out to these things at sort of two or three a.m in the morning now there's no tv reporter there at that time you are there with the camera you know we Usually with the cameraman and i was on my own all the time so there was a lot of overnight cameramen who were very kind to me and took me under their wings what was that like as a female going
0: into those? yeah it was a bit scary situation yeah it was it was
1: a bit um it was a bit scary um I remember asking them whether I could have the um, branding taken off the car. So I had a work car with 2GB emblazoned on it. And, you know, I'd sometimes be driving into some pretty rough neighbourhoods, sort of at 2 o'clock in the morning by myself, with 2GB written all over it. And I sort of said to them, can we have the branding taken off the car? And they were like, oh, we can't get it taken off, but we'll give you these magnetic stickers, like these black magnetic stickers to put over the things anyway so I put these stickers on the car I think I can't remember where I was going somewhere out west at sort of 2am put the stickers on the car the minute I hit the M4 r the stickers just flew off <laughs> flew off <laughs> massive black like oh. black sort of you know magnetic stickers strewn all over the M4 so uh that didn't that didn't last too long um but yeah, it was it was full on as a female. I've definitely had you know you definitely sort of feel a bit. You, you some, but the good thing is you know you're usually at a crime scene or something with that, some other media there. You know it was rare I guess that you were totally on your own. Um, usually there'd be an overnight camera or something, something there.
0: But. Yeah, I've spoken to Jodie Spears and I've spoken to Sarah Forster and I've spoken to a number of people that also did that crime round at Two UE um, and also in Two GB. So different people that had covered that same sort of beat. Back in the day, it would be pretty much a male that would do that that round. It was only newish when Lynn Scribbins and then Leanne Lincoln took on the role that it became more commonplace for females to do it. And I must say, like from somebody that is a bit of a radio nerd and listened to a whole lot of, of crime reporters, I found it really refreshing to listen to just a female voice and giving a different perspective on what may be happening and the way that they were able to paint a different word picture to what yes. your male colleagues would. Did you consciously think of the way that you would present a story from a female yeah, point of view? I
1: remember somebody giving me some advice when I first started in that crime round about detail, about picking up on details at scene and painting a picture because it's radio, you know, there are no pictures for the listener to see but it's about painting a picture. So it's, you know, it's small Small details in a story, like, um, and I think the example that was given to me was um, oh, something to do with a, a, a ch- something awful that happened to a child. It was at the house, and this this reporter had. Um, sort of talked about a, a wading pool with a little um, blow-up ball just floating on the water, kind of left behind in the backyard. It was so sad, you know, but it was yeah. that picture, it was creating that picture, and I, I remember always having that in my mind when I was at a crime scene or something, to look for the smaller details that could, I guess, tell part of a story, um, well, you think or people the are smell people- of things, yeah. you know, the smell of things. I remember going to a, uh, a a ram raid at a bottle shop, well, it smelt like red wine, you know, because this car had gone in the front window, and there was smash bottles everywhere, and obviously, obviously this thing is there's glass strewn everywhere and but it was the smell it was the overwhelming smell of alcohol you know of red of red wine everywhere I can't remember putting that in the story because I thought well that's what it's like being here you know
0: people that are are listening to that story aren't going to be aware of the other senses that you're feeling
1: yeah yeah and I think um I think as well I've always tried to bring a bit of empathy to my reporting and um I don't know if that's a female thing or if it's just a personal thing, but um, trying to think to myself, well, there could be family of the person involved in this that's listening or watching this story, and how would I want it told if I was involved in a tragedy like this? Because we deal with some awful things, you know, and I think you have to be conscious that that's somebody's loved one that you're talking about, you know, and it's very easy to be cold in this profession and try and be removed from it, but... I always try and keep that in the back of my mind as well.
0: How important is it, something like that, to, I guess, put emotion into the report but not have it overwhelm you?
1: Yes, and not sound cliche too, you know, like, um, oh, look, and I've definitely been overwhelmed by stories before um, and there's been a lot of stories that have gotten to me more than others. Um, At 2GB, I don't know, I did the story about the little boy in the suitcase down at... um, Uh, down around Ambervale, Rose Meadow, um, Dean Shillingsworth, uh, you know, he was found in the suitcase in a duck pond, and that story was awful. Like, I was there when he was found, and, you know, and I followed the story through, and uh, stories involving children, I think, are always, you know, often the worst. They're horrible, and that story affected me. I was quite, you know, quite upset by that story, and there's been others since, you know, and in TV, especially a lot involving children that are really hard, and I think, you, it's easy to say you can separate yourself from it and of course you can because you can go home to your own family at the end of the day but uh, you know you do become involved in it i think it, it does upset you know it does upset you i, I remember doing a, a report once on a awful story involving a child and i filed something for radio and I must have done a live cross. I think it was a live cross. And I remember my mum must have heard it and called me afterwards. She could obviously tell I was upset just with my voice. And I like, burst into tears when she called. But um, she could obviously tell, you know, like it, just even me doing it. Like I wasn't upset on air, but there was obviously something that in my voice that she could tell like, oh, this story's, you know, affected her kind of thing. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think you'd be, you know, I don't think you'd be human if you weren't affected by some of the stories we tell because some of them are pretty grim like you see the worst and I found that the hardest thing about the crime round is that day in and day out you were dealing with the worst sort of of society that's what I that's kind of what pushed me over the edge to leave that round in the end was you start to think everyone's bad (laughs) or everyone's got the potential to be bad you know or you know I, I guess you just you know you're seeing the worst you spend your sort of mornings at crime scenes your day in court like it's it's not I don't know that it's I mean, some people, you know, some reporters do it for 20, 20, 30 years. I don't, hats off to them. I don't know how they do it for that long.
0: I was going to say, it particularly in, in, in radio, it seems to have like a, a bit of a, a limited lifespan in that if you want to have a, a life outside of your work, it's probably got a two year cap on it. But like you say, I mean, there's people out there, in, particularly in TV, that have covered the crime round for, for 20 odd years. So, I mean, you have to be mentally. Oh, I
1: don't know how they do it. It's just I, oh, so I strong. Yeah. And and it's important we have, you know, reporters that do do it for that length of time because their contacts are remarkable, you know, and they're, just their knowledge. Like, you look at Simon Boda's knowledge of crime dating back till, I mean, goodness, you know, he's done some incredible stories, you know, and even Robert Avadia at Seven, you know, their knowledge of, and their co- police contacts are second to none, but it's a tough round to do day in, day out. And, I, you know, all I can think of is you know, imagine those police officers that are doing that and actually, yeah. you know, getting inside those crime scenes. We, we sort of watch from afar, but um, you just think about those emergency services workers. I think about them a lot and think, goodness, that's 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 a tough job.
0: <laughs> I guess part of that round also, part of the crime round, uh, comes with the live cross. Now, if you're in the pool of reporters, you might do two or three live crosses a week, but you know in the crime round that it's pretty much guaranteed that, there's going to be something that's happening every day. So to have that ability to adjust to providing the new service that you have to provide, which is your voice reporter on the hour or the half hour, and then being available whenever programs want you, because breaking news is breaking news, right? And on a talkback station like a 2UA or a 2GB, it's an essential part of their service because they want to get to whatever's breaking as quickly as they can. There must have been times when you would have been caught on the hop. How do you oh, yeah, keep your composure in those situations when you know that rush is going to happen <laughs> and you've got to file for news, you've got yeah, to be there for yeah. programming. It like, might be two minutes to the hour, but yeah. it's just like this big rush yeah. and clash. I think
1: you learn really on in, in that industry to um, regulate your voice. And I, you know what I reckon the best... Way of doing that is when you first start in radio. You know, you're doing, say, the great, say your first jobs usually sort of reading overnight news or something, and you're always a bit nervous. And I think it's that what you learn. You know, you learn to control your nerves. And I, I'll tell you what, every anyone that's done that overnight shift, there's been a there's been a time you've nearly missed the bulletin, like. You've heard the beeps and you've gone, oh my goodness. And you've run from wherever you are and you've run through the station to get into that news booth. And that's the moment where you have to control your breath, right? Because you're out of breath. You can't remember if you put a lead story in your in your newscast or not. You're thinking, oh my goodness. Like everyone has had that moment. You're still, you're not sure if you updated the sports scores. Like you and you, you, you know, and that's the moment where you're thinking. And you know you, you can you can hear newsreaders overnight if you know because they're like ah, and their voice goes really high and they yeah. speak really quickly.
0: Not, and this, it's... not necessarily always <laughs> overnight. You know, try working oh, for yes, an FM station go. where exactly. the bulletin goes three minutes early, well, and you're that, sitting at your you desk.
1: You've, we've all had that moment, right? And that's why, and you've done it. And I think when you're out in the road, you you know that, and so you quickly learn to be like you know, if I can regulate my breathing and just stay calm, I'm like, I'll be able to sort of get through this. But there is an element of planning in, in radio too. You know, you need to make sure you've filed for the news before you do your live cross. There's definitely an element of juggling. And when you're a young reporter too, it's easy to be kind of like, oh my goodness, like I'm being intimidated by producers that want something you know, but I've also got the news to, you know, fall back on. And I guess you sort of quickly learn about that juggling. And I'm still doing that now with Channel 9 because of all our daytime newses and cross commitments during the day and still trying to get the 6pm story up. And, you know, TV in many ways is becoming a lot more like radio these days with all the cross components.
0: You then left 2GB and I was quite surprised when I found out that you were going to to the, the PR side, I thought I know. Tele- television <laughs> was the next step. I thought if Laura was moving, she's going to be moving into TV. Oh, no. And then you uh, took a job working yeah. for where? You
1: know I worked for the government. I didn't last very long. I was um, going to
0: say, how long was it?
1: I think it was six weeks.
0: Then when you said you were going to channel, I thought, right, that's yes. the right move. Yes. So yes. how did the the jigsaw puzzle come I sort together? Of,
1: um, yeah, I... I just wanted to do something different. I'd I, you know, been in radio a while. Um, I just felt like I needed a change and I didn't really know what to do and um, I thought I just need to clear my head and do something different. Anyway, I took a job with government and I don't really know what happened those six weeks. I was in an office. I didn't quite understand the lingo being used most of the time. There was a lot of reports that got done. There was a lot of sort of flow charts that got done before you did the reports. Then there was venn diagrams um it was just look you know what it works for some people it just didn't work out for me i i think probably my job could best be summed up when i quit and i said to my boss yeah look i i she's like great job today i said look i can't do this anymore like i don't know what i'm doing and i just can't it's just not right for me and she said to me is it the matrix structure (laughs) and i said to her (laughs) look it probably is I don't something to do with that <laughs> I don't even know what that means I still don't know what that is <laughs> so I just was, you know it was very much government speak and um, bureaucracy and red tape and I'm just not I'm kind of the person that kind of tells it how it is and I just could I, I couldn't deal yep. with that but when I when I uh accepted that when I left 2GB I had a call from Ben Fordham to say where it's like where are you going and I said I'm going to this government job and he said well no, you should come to Channel 9. And I said, well, I've sort of already accepted this other job. And he said, well, if it doesn't work out, you know, give me a call because we want you at 9. And anyway, I lasted six weeks and then gave Ben a call and ended up at a current affair. So there
0: you go. (laughs) We'll get to a current affair in a second, but I've just remembered one of the highlights probably of your career in radio would have been going to the Olympics at Beijing. Um, Tell me about that.
1: It was great. You know what? It was one of the – they said to me, "Do you want to do the Olymp- Do you want to go to the Beijing to the Olympics?" And I'm not a sports reporter. In fact, I find sports reporting quite scary because I, you know, I think it's a specialty. You know, knowing your sport inside and out. And um, you know, I I, could, I know enough sports knowledge to be able to write a sports bullet, throw a sports bulletin together if I have to. But if I have to say the ins and outs on certain sports, I'm not very good. And so I was absolutely terrified, but I was like, well, I can't turn it down. Like it's a once in a, you know, it could be a once in a lifetime opportunity to go to Beijing, cover the Olympics. So, and, I, you know, I was going over with with Ray Hadley and, you know, he's not the kind of person you want to let down, is he? Like you don't want to sort of say the wrong thing on a, particularly in the realm of sport um, to Ray And, you know, and I have had a really good working relationship with Ray and, um, you know, I've covered a lot of stories for him, but I was like, oh, my goodness, this could be the end of it all, you know. And so I was terrified. I, I printed off the rules for every sport that was played at the Olympics. I had a folder, this massive folder that I, like, studied for weeks beforehand, like, you know, on even sort of... Like every remote sport, volleyball, everything. I was so scared. I, I oh, anyway, I felt so out of my comfort zone. So, um, and I had a, I had a blast. And you know what? It pushed me out of my comfort zone. I reported on sports that I didn't think I could. You know, um, it was it was an ama- it was amazing experience. It was, and it was it was extremely stressful because we went over there and it was just me and Rachel Stevens from the newsroom, and then yep. we had some guys in the sports team. We had, um, but one of our um, one of our staff felt really fell really ill over there, um, and so he got put in hospital. So then we were one down. Matthew Hill from yeah, Inspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was
0: just doing it for the experience exactly. mind you. He wasn't getting paid. And he was
1: super sick. Yeah, and and you know, so we lost um, you know, so we lost one staff to replace him. So we were down. So it was literally me and Rachel covering the whole of the Olympics for the news. Um, night and day, the time zone difference. Like, I don't really think I slept in a month. I lived off McDonald's cheeseburgers. Uh, me and Tim Davies, like, we, like, literally ate cheeseburgers all the time. In fact, I think at one stage we Googled, like, can you die from eating too many McDonald's cheeseburgers? <laughs> because that's what we ate all day, like breakfast, lunch oh, and dinner. Um, and, yeah, and it, w- it was fantastic. It was It was, you know, we were there for a month and it was so full on and we didn't sleep in a month, but it was – it was amazing. And I did it, you know, and I felt so good at the end of it. And we won an award for our coverage. We won an ACRA for our coverage, you know. And, yeah, it was really good to be a part of it, you know, to be a part of something like that. Um, it was fantastic.
0: Speaking of awards, you also picked up the Brian White Award. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you were at 2GB. It Tell me about that as oh, well. Oh,
1: I felt so honoured. Um, I, yeah, you know, um, when you look at the past people who've won that award, it's um you know, it's pretty prestigious and, you know, there's amazing names that have won that. And so I was so, I did not expect to win it. And I was so overwhelmed uh, about, about winning that. It's seriously one of the best nights I reckon um, on my life up on the Gold Coast. Um, It was fantastic. Yeah. And I I, I felt like all the long days and the long hours and the 2am call outs and, you know, the sad stories were kind of worth, worth, you know, you, you got some recognition for it, which was really nice. And, um whenever you know somebody wins that award i since then i usually send them a message or you know because they should be really proud like it's um and you don't do it for the you don't do this job for awards i don't usually enter in things you know um but it's it is nice to get that recognition um and yeah yeah it was it was really good yeah
0: all right let's talk about a current affair how did you find the transition from radio to TV? What were the most difficult things for you, particularly going to such a strong news brand, not necessarily as Channel 9, but the, the show A Current Affair?
1: Yeah. Um, I found the hardest thing, the hardest transition was thinking in pictures. So, you know, there's a lot of good stories to be told, but if you don't have the pictures to tell it, unfortunately you can't tell it on TV. And there was great – people would come to me with these amazing stories and had I been in radio, I could have, you know, easily told it, whereas – or if I'd worked for a newspaper or something, I could have told it. But, you know, at Channel 9, it's like if we don't – if we can't back it up with pictures, if we can't film things relating to it, then you can't tell it. I found that frustrating. Um, that was probably the biggest challenge I had when I first went over there. Um And I was really nervous at a current affair that I was going to end up having to like chase people down the street that I didn't think had done anything wrong. Like I was really nervous about like it um, jeopardizing my own morals or like my own sense of integrity. I was pretty nervous about that. Uh, It it ended up that you sort of tend to work on stories that you want to. It is kind of the way when when, at a current affair, that's kind of the way it works. So you would find the story and you would do it. So the, the people I did chase down the street. I usually then had already formed a pretty good relationship with the victims in it, and I felt really passionately about it, so I didn't mind chasing them down the street. Um, and I, I think the I didn't expect to meet such a great group of people at a current affair. The editors, the producers, they were some some of the funniest people, and I've ever met. Like uh, they just weren't what I expected. I, I think I sort of thought it'd be a bit like frontline or something. I don't know, but it, it, it wasn't like, they were just some of the smartest, wittiest, you know, funniest people. And these are people who've gone on to, you know, produce amazing stories on 60 minutes. There are people who've worked on amazing stories overseas who are now working at, you know, at a current affair. Like it's, there's a lot of really senior staff there with amazing experience. And I, I didn't expect that. I, I, I don't know why I, I guess, you know, because there's the consumer angle to the show. I, yeah. I, I didn't expect that. Um, so I had, yeah, I had a, had a blast and it was the longer format was interesting to learn too. you know obviously very different from radio news that's short short and sharp
0: yeah i was going to uh, say kind of that you're putting you put know, together sometimes
1: 12 minute stories yeah. you know, and you sort of um, what's that
0: what's that like you know like you say having to go from producing a 30 second or 40 yeah. second voicer on yeah. the hour or on the half hour to Doing that longer format, not even like a TV news bulletin style. No, longer, longer, yeah. Longer, longer, longer,
1: yeah. It was really different. And music, you know, putting music in your stories and stuff, like all that kind of was really foreign to me. And, um, and, also having to think whatever i write you've got to have a shot to cover it like i i, I sort of write these scripts and then the editor be like well where's the pictures for that and i'd be like oh i didn't really think about that you know she's like well you gotta go rat, rat you know go out and shoot shoot more pictures and i was like oh my goodness and just how many pictures you need for a story i found that a bit of a struggle it did me when i came back to news though i was like really quick at writing news stories because i was like i could get you 10 minutes on sausages you know like I was like, I can do 10 minutes on sausages? That's oh. easy. So yeah, yeah, when it yeah. came to like, can you get me a minute 20 or something? I'm like, no worries. That's that's a walk in the park. <laughs> so it was good to do ACA before news, I think, because I found news easier, you know, having been at a current affair. <laughs> yeah,
0: because obviously you're condensing the length <laughs> yes, of your story exactly. just into just like exactly. a walk in I'm the like, park. like, oh, just
1: the intro. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, you're around that particular time where things changed at, at Channel 9, where the news went from half hour to yeah. a, an hour, so A Current Affair was in that 6.30 time slot, yep. and a lot of A Current Affair reporters were then being used in in news. Yes. So how did that all pan out for you, and, and why was it that you ended up working for, for Channel yeah. 9 News?
1: Yeah, so... Um, Look, I loved my time at a current affair, and I started working in the new, uh, in the newsroom on the odd uh, weekend um, just to fill in because they were a bit short staffed with the new hour um, format and. I was originally doing it to help pay for our wedding, so right. um, and I was also reading the news for Smooth FM as well. Back in radio again on on the weekends too, so I was just doing some extra shifts just to kind of um, yeah help helps sort of save some money really. But I found and I was I was a bit scared about working back in the newsroom again. Like I, I think that that whole chase angle of chasing stories yes. because of a current affair. You know, it's a bit of a different. It's not often you're chasing a story, especially with TT when TT say, how did you folded. Go you I know? from
0: chasing in radio yeah, to then, I not, guess, yeah. pitching yeah. at ACA. Pitching, yeah, exactly. And then back, and then back, back to, chasing. to chasing. So I was
1: really nervous. Like, I remember doing one of the early shifts at news and I was really scared because I guess I saw news as being a lot more competitive and, you know, really cutthroat with Channel 7. And I was like thinking, oh my gosh, like, if I miss something, I'm going to get into trouble. And I don't know, I just didn't. I think I'd lost a bit of confidence that I would have had in my radio days and um so I was a bit like I don't know how this is gonna go and but I really loved it and I really loved the chase I didn't think I would be so anyway and I, I realized I I'd really missed it and I'd really miss that kind of camaraderie with other reporters on the road because at a current affair, you're very close with your team, but you don't really see people from other stations as much. And
0: Because they're not going to cover the same story They're not going to cover you. the same
1: story. Or you might see someone from Today Tonight back in the day, you know, when it existed, but, you know, was was unlu- usually unlikely. And so, yeah, I've, I just thought, oh, I've really missed this. And I felt like I'd had enough of a break from it, you know, to kind of be – really have that um, yearning again for the the breaking news and I love, I love live, like I love the live crosses and I just thought I've got it anyway. So I sort of said to them actually I think I want to go back to news and they said great. So they pulled me over. So then I went to nine, went to full-time in the newsroom and came
0: across. You mentioned there that you you love the live element and there seems these days to be more and more opportunities for that given the fact that okay you've got the today show which has got a very strong news flavor throughout it there's also morning news and then there's afternoon news and then there's the the six o'clock bulletin so for you in any one day you could do sort of three or four live crosses in in one day and not even uh, bat an eyelid whereas back in the day perhaps for a TV reporter, it was quite in, a big deal. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. might be expected to, to yeah. report live Everything's at six o'clock, live. and it's
1: a lot more like radio in that regards. I always think TV is becoming more and more like radio with the format and the live thing. And you'll find um, a lot of uh, radio producers can very easily come across to TV producing those daytime bulletins because they're very similar in terms of filling content, you know, rolling content kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but and that's why it's it's real. I find it really exciting again. TV, you know. With that live component, it's more like radio, I think, than it's ever been. And perhaps that's why I really enjoy it uh, so much. Whereas when I first left uni, I was like, I just want to be in radio, you know? And I think TV is much more like radio.
0: As we said, that sort of live element, you you were used to that in radio, but then had to do... In I had TV, to brush my hair I was going to say, you know, if you're chasing a criminal I down the my street, <laughs> on radio, you can sort of get your breath, I and know. it doesn't matter what your hair looks like or what I your makeup know. looks like. But TV, you could I be know. you could be bolting down the street yeah. chasing after somebody at court, and then all of a sudden, you've yep. got to be prim and proper for the for the TV. I know. I know. What's that like?
1: I've, I found the best bet is like just going to work looking half presentable because you just never know when you're going to end up on air, you know. Like people who – I know some reporters who like come in at 4 or 5 o'clock and they're like, oh, I'll do my makeup in the car. That's like a big mistake because I've been on air in the newsroom on air. Do you know what I mean? Like I've literally walked yep. in the door before and the Today Show's gone, quickly, just stand in front of the monitors and do a live cross on something that's happened overseas, you know. Like you're like, what? So I've kind of learnt like the minute your shift starts – you need to look like you could be on the TV. You know, it doesn't matter if it's not perfect blow dry or it doesn't matter if your makeup's not perfect, but you have to look like at least like you're half awake and that you could go on the TV because at a moment's notice, you could have to go live. And it's the same when you're out on the road, you know, especially with the capabilities TV has now with our sort of digeros and like, which is like a portable link, you know. So basically we can report live from anywhere. I mean, I did a live cross on the F1 while driving a car for the Today Show one morning nice. in traffic. You know, we had the little portable link in the back, you know, and my cameraman sat in the passenger seat and filmed me, like, at a truck crash, driving around the crash, you know. So, it's amazing the potential, you know, TV now has. It used to only be radio that could really break that stuff really easily, whereas… The more portable these links are, the more easier it is for, for TV to to have that that capacity to be really live. And I think Channel 9 has really embraced that. Um, and I think in the last few years, that's what's kind of put them above, um, I guess, you know, above its competitors in a way because they've really embraced, like, um, you know, Darren Wick's been really instrumental in getting that breaking news, that live coverage. Um, you know, he's he's... He's always saying, you know, if you can go live, you go live. If you can get movement in, you know, you get movement in. Like, don't do a stationary piece to camera. If you can move in a live cross, do it. You know, like.
0: So radio it, you would know. have given you such a great grounding. Yeah,
1: it's a great grounding. Oh my goodness, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I still, I still love radio, and I. I'm really grateful for the background it gave me in that because I I wasn't daunted by just chatting. And, you know, you'll find a lot of of TV reporters still, you know, heavily script their live crosses. I've never been big on doing that and I never did it in radio. So I feel like that's the same kind of, yeah, like I think, you know, in radio you don't even know what questions the announcer's going to ask you, you know. So I think that was a really good grounding in feeling confident enough that you know a topic well enough that, um, you know, they can throw you a curveball and you won't be – caught off guard.
0: You mentioned earlier on, really early on in this interview, about how you've pretty much got to be consumed by the news when you work as a a journalist in in radio or or TV. When you had your daughter, was it hard to just completely divorce yourself and and, and switch off from the media or the news cycle and just think, I'm not working today, I'm not working for the next 12 months? I can afford myself a couple of days of not I've trolling not, not. through yes. Twitter like an absolute lunatic yep, I um, every so. 10 feel minutes. feel a bit apart
1: from the world. I, I mean, I look, I must say I still sort of schedule her last fee to coincide with the 6 p.m. news. Um, bad mum. Uh,
0: <laughs> nah, just journo yeah. in the book.
1: <laughs> um, tr- yeah, and, and that's the other thing. Like, you don't want the TV on all the time either with a little one. You know, I just don't think that's very healthy. So, but I mean, you you are right. It is really it is really hard to it's hard to switch off. It is hard to switch off, and I still always want to see the six pm news every day. And if I don't, I feel anxious. Um, and you do feel that a bit out of the loop. I think that's always going to be a battle, though, because I think you know when I go back to work, it's going to be that battle that I do have to be across it. But I don't want her to be, you know, Chicken. feel like she has to be across it or feel that she's playing second fiddle to me listening yeah. to the news. So. Um, Balancing oh, I think at the act. moment I can probably afford to be a bit more separated from it you know while I'm not currently having to go to work but I think it's, next year is going to be a real challenge to work out how I balance that so I'll be going to all these other working mums and asking for their advice I think I
0: was going to say like just from my experience just purely from going on perhaps you know like a, a five week holiday every year there's gaps in my knowledge bank from news or sport or whatever the case may be from when I went away and I just when did that happen? Yes. I can't remember that happening. Oh, it must have happened when I was away. Yes. So you're going to have like a, a year gap no. in your... You
1: no, know, I used to always try and have one holiday a year where I would switch off. I wouldn't watch the news. So usually like an overseas holiday, like we might go yeah. to Europe for a few weeks. And I literally would be like, I'm not going to look at the news. something really big always happened every time I was away like Steve Irwin died Kerry Packer died I feel like all these massive people died every time I go away and I'd be like feel so out of the loop when I got back I was like oh my gosh I felt cheated like I didn't know about it I didn't watch you know so I feel like you can't do that for a year like while you're on maternity leave you have to be aware of it you just and the best time is I find when she's Falls asleep in the car, and I'm too scared to like turn off the engine and wake her up. You'll find me driving around the streets of Sydney, listening to talkback radio, feeling like I'm sort of absorbing sort of all the news of the day while she happily sleeps in the back seat. That's when I get my catch up time.
0: <laughs> but you know what? I find the best people, or the best media people, are the ones that want to be involved in the big stories.
1: I think you have to want to be. You have to want to do it, Ralph. Like this job. You don't get paid the big bucks anymore. It's not like the golden era where, you know, um, people in TV or, you know, I mean, maybe unless you're sort of Alan Jones or, you know, Ray Hadley or Carl Stefanovic or the really big names, you know, the rest of us that just kind of like pump the content, you know, you're not being paid, you know, really, really uh, big money anymore. You've got to do it for the love of it. Why else would you get up at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning and work till 7 or 8 o'clock at night? Like and that's why you want to be involved in the big stories because it's the thrill of the chase it's that thrill of being a part of history and we get to be involved in history you know like some of the stories that i've covered and you i think that will be history like the you know the sydney siege the you know the big blue mountains bushfires i did all those for nine and you think they'll you know they get written down in history events like that
0: at one stage you said you knew you'd made it as a tv reporter when you did a story from the chopper Yes. So that's I one know.
1: to Yeah, I know. It was so exciting. I know. Because, you know, you always sort of see that and you think, oh, wow, I love the chopper at Channel 9. It is the best. <laughs> like you think it's going to be cool and it's like so much cooler than you think. But I'm sure someone's told you about the training that you have to do to, to – No. Undergo cho- okay, so you have to do this thing called Hewitt training so that you can fly as a crew member. Right. and. They basically put you in a pool, so you're fully clothed. They put you in like a fake chopper cabin and they dump you in a swimming pool blindfolded, tied up, and they turn you upside down and you have to untie yourself blindfolded upside down and swim out the door. Are you panicking? It's awful. I punched the instructor in the face. That's how panicked I was. (laughs) And it got to the point where I was like, you know what? If we crash in the water, I feel like my time's done. Like, I, I'm quite happy. I've had a really good time on Earth. Up. Like, I feel like, you know, I feel like that happens. That, that's kind of the, yeah. So it's this training, this underwater training you do. But everyone has to do it at nine if you're going to be flown in the chopper. And it is terrifying. It's horrible. It's horrible. And you dread it. You have to do it every few years. And it's horrible. Oh, yeah. Wow. I yeah. Never knew that. Yeah. There you go. So they put you in this little cage thing. And you have a headset and everything, and you're like, got your seatbelt on, and then they flip you upside down underwater.
0: Wow, that's awesome. There you go. <laughs> um, you met your husband at work. Yes. Gavin Pitchford, yes. best known as the, the one iron <laughs> on, on 2GB. Um, a wonderful fellow who I've known for, jeez, must be pushing on 15 years now. What is it like having somebody? that works in media, that understands that vicious cycle and understands the immediacy of radio and, and TV. Is that a great support for you?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I think for the hours that I work, certainly in news, it's a big support. He understands if I'm not home at a certain time or he understands if I call in and say, um, I'm on a plane to... Vanuatu, you know, or wherever, you know, or oh, I've actually, I'm in Dungog because, like, all these houses got swept downstream, you know. Like, he he understands that, which is really good. Um, I guess the downside is you can be in a bit of a media bubble sometimes, you know, because you're 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 both dealing with the same kind of stories every day. But I I really like the fact that he 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 understands my drive to be a part of a story. He also
0: he, may be. One of the more relaxed humans I think I've met.
1: Yeah, he, he's pretty chilled. Uh, yep, yep. Um, he, he's he's pretty good with most things, and you know, he he met I met him when I was at Two GB, and he was at Two GB, so it's kind of nice we all know the same people too, and uh, you know, in the industry, which is a nice thing as well um and look his job is slightly different to mine and he's now got a fishing show and a golf show as well on 2gb so he certainly has his own kind of interest in that, that more of a sporting kind of field um i'm more probably more harder news is what i really like but it's, i think it's a good balance i think we we do well poor our poor daughter though you know like gosh two media parents poor thing I'll encourage encourage her to do something great, save the world or become a doctor or something.
0: (laughs) At least least she'll know what's going on in the world, which can't be a bad thing. She'll
1: have to listen to talk back radio, though. Poor thing. (laughs) (laughs) She'll be like, put on the wiggles.
0: We'll um we'll wrap things up in, in a in a sec. And you bought some hot chips that I fear have gone cold know, over the last um. Hour that's okay.
1: Or so. Cold hot chips aren't so bad. I felt like it was a hot chip kind of day.
0: I want to get some advice from you for anybody that's looking to pursue a career in media. You've done it in radio and you've you've done it in in TV um over the, the period of, of more than a decade now. So what would you say to somebody that's looking to, to get into the media
1: I usually tell people to try and go regional first that's the advice that I think I've mentioned before um, it's 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 easy to be in your comfort zone and stay where you grew up or you know um, but it's a lot harder to throw yourself into a small town and and, and uh, but this You'll get to probably report a lot quicker if you want to be a reporter, especially if you want to be on air or if you want to, um, you know, write actual articles and have your name published. I think it's a lot easier to do that in a smaller place. Um, I find a lot of people start at Channel Nine and think that they're going to be a reporter in a year or two. It doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't. Very few people it works that. I mean, some people do produce for a long time and then become a reporter, but I think I would really encourage people to kind of. Um, go regional because like you can break big stories in regional areas and you get to break the story like you get to report you get to do it all so I I probably give that advice and just like ask lots of questions ask if you're doing work experience ask lots of questions if you're doing a story ask lots of questions because you never know what the answer will be to, to give you a totally different angle and you know if you ask a question no one else has asked then that could give you an edge to the 10 other reporters that are doing the same story as you and I think as well, like, just be respectful and kind to people because when you're interviewing, like, a lot of the, a lot of our job is interviewing, victi- you know, victims of crime or people who've lost loved ones, you know, there's, and I just think, I see the way some reporters treat people and I just feel a bit sick, you know. I just think you just should be kind to people and treat people like how you'd want your family treated if something awful happened to them. That's what I often tell young people. I think it's very easy to see something as a story and... You know, but they're human beings with like emotions and lives, and you come into their life at this extraordinary traumatic time, and then you leave it just as quickly, and you don't know the damage that you're causing that one person in what is already a horrific time. Like, it's not easy having to knock on somebody's door when, you know, their wife or child has died. Like, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing to do, but I think somebody has to do it and I always think well if you if you do it in the best way possible then I'm okay with having to do that because it could be someone who does it in an awful way you know like so you sort of think I don't know that's how so I just tell people to be kind and respectful and just to work hard hey I think don't be afraid of a bit of hard work and you're not going to get the most glamorous job straight out and and you know what TV is not glamorous I tell that people, people all the time like I'll be, like, lucky to have breakfast in the morning and I'll be in a gutter somewhere, you know. Like, it's not fun. It's not, like, it's not fun all the time. And there's a lot of waiting around too, you know. It's either really stressful and exciting or really boring because you're, like, sitting outside someone's house waiting for them to get home or, you know, you're sitting in court waiting for a story to come up, you know. You know what it's like. It's... it's. Um, yeah, and I think the most important thing is if people do work experience and they actually ask the questions, they'll know in advance whether it's for them or not because you'll see both sides of it. And you can't always expect to have the best story of the day and you've got to just do the best with the story that you're given and I'm a big believer in that. You know, If you get the, the Coles versus Woolworths shopping story, you do it to your best of your ability and you don't complain because... Tomorrow you could be covering the Sydney siege, like you just don't know, you know. And I like, and that's the variety of it is what I what I love about the job—the fact that you can do something totally different every day. But you shouldn't complain about that because I think it's, I think it's a real privilege to to you know be able to do our job. Like it's not a real job, is it? You know, really? Like is it? Like you know, it's not a real job. Like there are people out there saving lives, and you know, sitting at offices and crunching numbers all day, and we get to go out and interview people and go to new suburbs and. it's it's a pretty good job. We're pretty lucky.
0: (laughs) Laura Tunstall, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Ralph. Good to talk to you. There she is, Laura Tunstall from Channel 9. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Laura, please let her know by sending her a tweet. She's at lauratunstall9. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the MediaMates Podcast. The Media Mates Podcast.